we had this huge opportunity to do our very first subway campaign. We put these beautiful artful ads together and the New York City subway system, basically the MTA said no. Like you can't say the word period in the subway. You can't have a, a halved grapefruit on the subway because it looks like a vagina. And we're like, it's a grapefruit. And also they were using the exact same fruit, the grapefruit to represent augmented breasts. Hello and welcome to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and this is the podcast where we find out what it's really like to be a top entrepreneur and how to get there. Today, I'm talking to Mickey Agrawal, a serial entrepreneur who's tried everything from professional football, restaurants, and period pants to her most recent venture, Tushy, which is a pretty unusual product and growing very fast. Now, Tushy have developed a collection of bidets and other accessories to the bathroom that are going to help you become more hygienic, less wasteful, and kinder to your backside. Mickey and I talk about scaling, hiring, employee theft, and the four Ps, but you're going to have to listen to find out more about what ones those are. They're not the traditional ones, I'll tell you that much. But first, let's rewind. And like any good therapist, ask our brilliant guest what their childhood was like. It was honestly amazing in that, you know, I grew up with a Japanese mother and an Indian father. My mom was from Japan, like off the boat from Japan. My dad is off the boat from India. And they met and fell in love. And within, you know, seven months they had, well, they had their first kid. And within a year they had three kids. So we're, I'm an Irish triplet, basically. I have an identical twin sister and I have a third sister who's 11 months older than us. And we grew up in the suburbs of Montreal, Canada. So French is actually our first language. And we grew up playing soccer. We went to school seven days a week, Monday to Friday, we had French school, Saturday, Japanese school and Sunday, Hindi school. And then we played soccer and badminton and sports and kind of just did the wholesome immigrant family thing. Yeah, the immigrant kind of like learn everything just in case thing. Yeah, basically. Sunday's not a rest day. Sunday is like, you know, you've got to get a, get ahead of the Westerners day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, in Asia, they go to in Japan, they go to school and work six days a week, which I think it's not good. But I think when you're a kid, it's like, I mean, every day, if I can learn, it, it's kind of, yeah, I talk about brain care. It supports your brain. And I think as kids, we're just sponges. We just want to keep learning and growing. And it's the best time to do that. So talking a little bit about your, where you got onto in life, like how do you think that your childhood actually impacted your career at all? Like what does your sister do, for example, your identical twin sister? Yeah, she's also an entrepreneur. She started an early morning dance movement called Daybreaker, which is in 30 cities around the world, obviously pre-COVID. And then during COVID, they had to do a whole virtual dance thing. Um, I would say like the thing that really supported us from our upbringing was that, you know, our, our parents were always... You know, we grew up, my dad came here with $5 in his pocket, truly from India. Sounds pretty cliche, but it's true. And in one generation, you know, they, they put three kids through Ivy League schools and built the American dream for us. And on the sheer idea that if you see something that you don't like, you question it, like ask those questions. And, and you are as much as somebody to fix a problem that you see, even if you don't have resources, you have no money. My parents, when we were 11 years old, sat us down, taught us how to budget. Like, what does budgeting look like? Like, spend less than you earn. We're giving allowance. Here's how you start saving. I think a lot of my entrepreneurial and creativity comes from my parents. I mean, growing up, we went, we had all kinds of games, like during our birthdays. We, 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 everyone, all of our friends had to come to one of their current events for the year. So they couldn't come to our birthday parties without knowing, as five-year-olds, like, who is the new president of whatever country, you know, that was in the news? And then my parents made this game called Guess No, and you had to have these flags. 
it was just super competitive mentally and, and, and kind of physically. We had all these like sports things and they were just very creative and inspiring in that way. And, and without even very like, you know, middle class, my father was an, an, an engineer. They managed to just somehow stretch every dollar and make them all count. So I, I think we, we really learned a lot about using creativity, questioning everything, not just looking at things from one perspective, Japanese, Indian, Canadian, French, Canadian, like, you know, looking at a problem or things from many perspectives, I think really led us to thinking about problems in new ways as we got, became entrepreneurs. I love that. And you said as we became entrepreneurs. So, you know, talk to us about like the transition. I, what was education through to, did you have like a first job? Did you go straight into entrepreneurship? What was your journey? Well, I was kind of a terrible employee in general. I'm pretty unemployable and I have very strict Indian. We all are, to be fair. Entrepreneurs are such annoying employees. Yeah, I was the worst. And I kind of, I got fired from pretty much all of my jobs growing up because I just wasn't like listening or I was questioning or I was talking back or I was running in the hall or I was eating while in the job or giving away smoothies to friends or whatever job I had, I did something wrong. I think entrepreneurship was like one of the like major options for me because it was really the only option kind of, I guess. No, I'm not. It's actually not why I became an entrepreneur, but I really wanted to find my my place and I couldn't find it. And my first job out of college was investment banking and I was the world's worst investment banker of all time. And, you know, I just didn't care. And I, I would sneak out of my investment banking job actually twice a week to try out for the New York Magic soccer team that was holding tryouts in Brooklyn. So I convinced like a, our Deutsche Bank driver, well, first of all, the, the guards to hold my soccer bag, which was against the rules of the bank to, for them to hold anything, but they kept my soccer bag under their like security desk because I used to sneak them food all the time. And then they would bring my soccer bag to the car service guy of the bank. And the car service guy would take my soccer bag, drive it down one block, turn the corner, and I would like leave the bank literally at like five o'clock with a FedEx box under my arm as though I was like going to FedEx to like deliver some little documents for the bank. And then I would like walk outside, turn the corner, jump in the car. And then we would drive to Brooklyn. This car service driver, like he was always, he loved soccer. And so he wanted to support my dream to become a professional soccer player. And so he drove me to Brooklyn, stayed there for three hours during the tryouts and the training and the getting ready and all that. And it would drive me back to the bank at like 10 o'clock at night um, so I can finish my work. And I did that for almost, yeah, two and a half to three months during tryouts twice a week. I did that snuck out, you know, it was a full plan and I made the team and I made the starting lineup and it was like, I was all set to quit my job. But then I was like, let me play in the first game of the season. And the first game of the season, I tore my ACL in the first eight minutes of my game. Wow, what sliding doors moment. Could have had such a different life. I know, I know. And it was, it was one of those. So I said, okay, so I, I stayed in the bank for another year to get the best health insurance, the best physical therapy. And, and then I went out and tried again the following season, made the team again, made the starting lineup again, came back 110%, like worked so hard. And then tore my other ACL in, my, in the semifinal. So it was like, okay. Oh, that really is divine plan. It's like, hey, this is not for you. I know. We tried to tell you you're fucking stubborn, but let me tell you again. <laughs> yeah. So the universe was like, you're done. And so I was like, uh, so I got, I got the memo and, and then my next thing on my list that I want. So my, the big story was, you know, my first week on my job, investment banking, I got 9-11 happened. 
And it was the first day, you know, in my life that I slept through my alarm clock on that day. And it was like my big wake up call, like 700 people in my girlfriend's office died. Two people in my office died. It was like just the most surreal, like you can't make this shit up. Like this is a terrible like movie concept, you know, like it just not unfathomable that that happened. But then that's really what put me on my path. I'm going to try out some magic. I'm going to make movies. I'm going to start a business. Like I had to write, like at 22 years old, I, I was like contemplating deaths, like in a real way for the first time. And I was just like, man, like, am I going to stay in a safe job because my parents like respect me if I do it? Because it's, or am I going to go and chase my dreams and like really chase the fire inside? Because fuck it, I might die like right now. Like, literally, I was lucky I wasn't 32 or 42 or 52 when I had this near death experience. It was 22. So it was like that big moment of questioning. So that's when I wrote down, play soccer professionally, make movies, start a business. And I was like, I'm going to do those things. And so soccer was done and then make movies. I basically started picking up trash on the streets of commercials and music videos and driving directors around and getting producers coffee and being like, my parents were like, my Cornell student, you know, what is she doing? You know, and, and then very quickly worked my way up to production managing, producing you know, commercials, music videos and things like that. And while I was on set of the commercials, when I had my first idea, I was ha- eating all the craft service on the tables. There's all free food and free everything. And I was like, free is my favorite price. And so I was just like, I'm going to just keep eating this free shit. But it was like pigs in blanket, pizza, like terrible processed shit, you know? And I was just like, ugh, in just so much pain all the time. And I finally went home one day and I was like, all right, what's going on with my system? I'm like, I can't, everything's shutting down. And that's when I researched and I was like, oh my God, my first idea came to me, which was I'm going to create New York City's first farm to table alternative pizza concept made with gluten-free flours, hormone-free cheeses, local seasonal toppings, local supporting local farms, creating local jobs, like all these things that in 2004, 2005, nobody was talking about local seasonal farm to table, organic you know, it was a big idea, but I didn't, I didn't realize. And I think entrepreneurs have to have a shit ton of naivete going into any business. Cause like, I I could do that. Like, you know, like, sure, of course I can. Right. And, and it doesn't compute. Wait, I have to, okay, I have to get a storefront. Now I have to put equipment in there that I've never worked before. I don't even know how to cook, you know, at the time. And then I have to like negotiate with a landlord of a New York city real estate property and to like secure a 20 year lease. Then I have to hire kitchen staff. I've never hired a person in my entire life. Like I, I need to get the bookkeeping and all the legit like money and or food and just everything to start a business. And I just didn't even, I was like, how hard could it be? I mean, like, you know, I ate the whole humble pizza, put it that way. <laughs> so for seven years, I ran my restaurants myself and did a pretty good, <laughs> I mean, I'm proud of myself that I kept them going on sheer will and just making it. I remember standing outside my restaurant for years, every day for years, giving out little tiny pieces of pizza to anyone walking by. Like, you want to try some healthy, you know, organic pizza? They're like, ew. I'm like, okay, let me try something else. Do I try some delicious farm to table pizza? I'd be like, oh, try. So I kind of like learned what made people go, ooh, what made people go lean in, lean out. I really think that it was like a PhD in humaning and really understanding the human experience and what opens, what closes, what makes people open, what makes people close. That's when I developed my thesis around how to shift culture, how to shift consciousness, how to get people to think about 
anything in a different way where they would first recoil, but then lean in. And over the years, it has worked for my restaurants. It then worked for sinks and it worked for Tushy across the board. This thesis that I developed over these years of standing outside my restaurant, handing out pizza to everyone, it works. So the thesis is basically three prong. The first has to be a best in class product, whether it's the tastiest pizza ever. Like you can't just be like, here, farm table pizza that's gluten free and it tastes like shit. Like people will be like, ew, never again. So it has to be, or underwear or bidets or whatever it is, it has to be something that I would want to wear, something I would want to see in my bathroom that don't, doesn't feel like like a device or something attached to my toilet. And so it has to be, has to be best in class product, number one. Number two, it has it, it, an artful experience. You know, like whether I, the way I'm presenting and my, my restaurant interior, whether it's my, just the experience of, of having somebody come to my restaurant, is it a romantic experience? Or is it kind of like this loud, like lit, you know, where people have overhead lights? You're just like, what are you doing? This is not attractive for anyone, you know, or for things or for Tushy. It was like, how do you make artful creative where people are walking in a subway and seeing a period proof underwear advertisement, but they're leaning in because it's so beautiful and artful and not like, period, blah, blah, you know, it's more like, wow, that's beautiful. And, oh my God, they're talking about periods. But my first impression was to lean in and therefore I'm not going to recoil because my first instinct was already opening. And then the third prong is accessible, relatable language. You know, we've tried medical, clinical, academic, theoretical, all the different things that was way too heady. You know, we're trying to use buzzwords and big words and this, and it was over people's heads. And we're like, this is totally not working. So let me meet people where they are. Let me just talk to them like I'm texting my best friend. What does it look like when I text my best friend? When we text our best friends, we're silly, we're funny, we're just careless. We don't give a shit that much. We're just like, just being authentic. We're being fully ourselves. We're not, you know, like, what do they want me to say? And then let me say in a way that's exactly what, and then it's so inauthentic and it just feels yucky and then people recoil again. So that thesis, I really learned by standing outside of restaurants for years and years and years and that led to two nine-figure companies, you know, like it's true, like authenticity, you can't fake it. Art, people love art. doesn't matter what, where you are from, how old you are. You look at art in a way that's with reverence, you know, and you look at it with like this different level of just like advertising, shouting at me, like, like, I don't like that, you know, don't shout. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. 
This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Why did you stop doing pizzas? Like what moment comes about where you're like, I've had enough now or I'm moving on or like, what's the story there? And where did you get like your next spark of inspiration? So I was like robbed by literally every manager, pretty much most managers, most workers. Anytime I went from one restaurant and left to go to my other restaurant, I finally, like, you know, managed to like save up enough change to open up my second restaurant. I was so proud of myself. Like I had these small moments that I still can like, if I tap back into those moments, I can literally like feel it in my body, which is, I remember like driving my bicycle from like my Upper East Side restaurant to my West Side, West Village restaurant on my bicycle. And the sun was setting and like, it was like his first spring day. And I was like, oh, like I made this life. Like, you know, it was like this imprinting moment of like, I'm choosing my own destiny here. And it was a really powerful moment. So from there, I then got really like, I, I swallowed a, a big fat pill of, of life basically where when I would go from one restaurant to another, that one restaurant that would do really well would all of a sudden be half in sales. I was like, oh, I wonder what it is. And then eventually I finally put a, fr- I had a friend sent in a friend to just go like, I doubt, I mean, these guys, like they, I gave, got him a car. Like I bought him a new bike. Like I'm like, there's no way. But I found out that they would like take the money, put it in the tip jar, wouldn't ring it up and then just keep it. And so like just stuff like, like crazy shit like that, where I just had to learn like how to navigate theft and things like that. And I had manager, one manager of a course of four years stole like a hundred thousand dollars from me. Like just stuff like that, where I was just like, oh my God, how, how naive. So I finally found my restaurant partner, who's still my partner to this day, 2013, where Wally, I met him through Moby and we, we, he was running Moby's vegan restaurant in Lower East Side and we'd met, he was, he had good energy. And I finally, I was like, who can I work with? Who I finally, after seven years of trying and trying and trying, I was like, I'm clearly not a restaurant operator. I'm like the creative. I'm the person who has the ideas, marketing. I can get people to come in. I can be able to stay. I can talk to all the people in the restaurant. But when it comes to the restaurant operations, like I need someone. And so I finally looked at my role. I was like, oh, Waleed, let me just call him. And Waleed was such a divine intervention moment where I was just like, he came to a restaurant. He goes, oh, your restaurant's name is what? My name is Waleed. Waleed, wild, wild Waleed. Like, and I was just like, that was the first thing. And then my first question to him, I was like, Waleed, do you believe in karma? At that point, I'd been so screwed. So he said, Mickey, every time I have a bad thought, a bicycle run over my foot. <laughs> and he, I was like, oh, great. I was like, are you the genie from Aladdin? I was just like so excited that he really believed in karma and that he felt like even having a bad thought, a bicycle runs over his foot. And ever since then, he's been my partner. He's been so loving and so real. And, and the one thing that I also learned was the minute he took over my restaurants, within the first week, our numbers doubled. 
Within the first month, our numbers tripled. And I was like, for seven years, I was working, like just barely, you know, because I was just not aware of how to run it in a way that was operationally sound. Yeah, because you don't believe in karma. I'm just joking. Well, I clearly did because I didn't think anyone was stealing from me. I was so naive, right? Like, Yeah, true. That's actually, I think, one of the best interview questions I've ever heard. Obviously, it would turn like loads of people off, but that's actually kind of perfect. I think it's a great interview question. I've got so many interviews to do tomorrow. Genuinely, I'm going to ask it on all of them and let you know how it goes. Uh, please. I would really love that. Be, I'm, I'm curious how people respond. I'm 100% doing it. I can't wait. I can't wait. So because while he was able to take over the operations, it then really freed up my time to focus on other ideas and other big dreams and other things I wanted to do. And in 2005, when, you know, my twin sister and I, we were, you know, at our family barbecue and we were defending our three-legged race championship title. Um, in the middle of our race, you know, my sister started her period and we were tied to each other because we're a three-legged race and she started her period and her like blood was like running into my sock and it was just like, oh my God. And so we had to like run through the finish line, up the stairs, into the bathroom. And so she can change out her bathing suit bottoms and wash them out. And as she was washing out her bathing suit bottoms was when the idea hit for the next company, which is called Thinks. And it was like period-proof underwear. We were like, no stains, period. We had come up with all these like, terribly hilarious, punny, like dumb slogans for it. But then I just started my restaurant. So we kind of tabled it. And then finally, when my partner came in to the space, I was able to kind of repick that up and brought in a third co-founder and my sister. And we all kind of started working on that again, really in 2011. And then 2014 is when we launched the company. 2013, kickstarted and launched a company in 2014. And then really spent, again, the next few years building out that business, the next business. So with Thinks, so you started in 2013, launched a Kickstarter in 2014. Take us on a little journey. What happened with the company? Um, how did you grow? Yeah. What happened afterwards? Like what led you to your, your next journey? So my goodness, it was such a crazy story. But we, in 2013, 2014, when we really started to like try to fund rules, you know, we raised a big fat donut because all of the investors were like, ew, bleed in your underwear. That sounds like the worst idea I've ever heard in my entire life. Like I would never know and ever buy this. All the women were like, I would never bleed in my underwear. This makes no sense. And we're like, yeah, but you use this backup. It's not just straight bleeding. Although now everyone just bleeds right into them and they wash them out. But it was just such a foreign thing back then, you know? And, and so we raised no money. And so we had to launch a Kickstarter campaign. And the Kickstarter, we raised $65,000. And that was by like, contacting my like kindergarten teacher from like on Facebook and, you know, whatever, anyone who would buy, we were just like, hey, can you long, I haven't talked to you in 30 years, but check out my new Kickstarter. You know, it was just like such a, I mean, people are like, oh, I just launched a Kickstarter. Kickstarter in and of itself is like a marathon of selling your product, you know? And it was like, it was a first real foray of like, wow, this is really hard. and. But we sold 3,000 units. We raised $65,000 on Kickstarter. We then entered a few competitions. We won one competition, won a $25,000 cash prize. And then we launched an Indiegogo campaign, raised another 20,000 on Indiegogo. Then we launched like a shitty 1.0 website, you know, and raised another 25. So we basically cobbled together about $130,000 just from like no fundraising whatsoever, just from like these kinds of pre-sales. And then we were able to basically manufacture our first 3,000 
units. And our third co-founder had met a potential manufacturing person on the plane randomly on our way on a trip somewhere. And he was, you know, half Chinese, half American. So he, he had a contact in China that can make the underwear. It was just like this, again, like the universe just kind of throwing us these breadcrumbs to kind of make this possible. We then finally raised like, so when you send out these 3000 pairs and then we we sent out a survey monkey to all of our customers finally after we delivered these pairs in the most crazy way possible because it was like from Kickstarter, from, you know, from pre-sales, from our website, from it was so like labor intensive to ship them all by hand ourselves. And then we we basically, rate, you know, we sent a survey monkey, got some survey responses from customers, which 99% of them were like, this is the greatest thing ever. Like it changed my life. And that's where we're able to take those, that survey responses to friends and family and be like, hey, like, look, like, can we, you know, it's a business. It's, it's you know, a thing. And so we ended up raising like four, cobbled together just around $400,000 to start the business, which was still not that much money, you know, to really like get inventory and to, but that was all we could raise. And so we were like, we're starting, like, we're going to we launch a website and we're going to get some inventory and then figure out. And, you know, my first two employees were barely getting paid and they were, you know, one was still in school and the other one just graduated. And, you know, I was still a first time direct to consumer brand founder besides my restaurants. It's a very different type of business. And so we ended up hiring like a lot of pretty much young 20 something types and a lot of young epic creatives like the first hires for me were like creatives because we needed to really crack the code on how to present this product to customers in a way that was palatable because it was like, again, ew, period underwear, like what the hell is this? And we grew and then all of a sudden 2015 came and we had this huge opportunity to do our very first subway campaign. We put these beautiful artful ads together and the New York City subway system, basically the MTA said no. Like you can't say the word period in the subway. You can't have a, a halved grapefruit on the subway because it looks like a vagina. And we're like, it's a grapefruit, you know? And they were using- yeah, what are you talking about? It's, it's definitely not a vagina. It's a grapefruit, guys. Right. And also they were using the exact same fruit, the grapefruit to represent augmented breasts. They had little oranges represent like a sad woman with small breasts. And then these using these big grapefruits to represent these big breasts and a woman on a big smile on her face. You could use them for that, but you can't use them to represent the thing that creates human life. Like a woman's period doesn't make any sense. And so we basically said, if you don't, you know, let us advertise in the subways, we're going to press and we're going to tell the story. And they were like, go to press. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you called my bluff. I don't know any press. So I, I found two people who I kind of knew through people, one from the Forbes and one from um, at the time, Mike.com. And I sent them an email subject heading scandal with the MTA. Both of them decided they want to write the story. And I was like, oh my God, perfect. You both get the exclusive. They're like, that's not how exclusives work. And I'm still such a green person in this field, in the field of PR and press and all of that, that I just like, oh, oh, I'm not gonna give it to anyone else. But both of you could write the story. Anyways, Mike.com ended up taking the story. The story went viral internationally. And that's what put us on the map. And it really changed the entire storyline of our business. And we went from tiny business to all of a sudden doing 1 million, 2 million, 3 million, 4 million, 5, you know, a month and just growing so fast. And it was just like, oh my God, holding on for dear life. Obviously never experienced anything like this. We were just dying to hire people. So I kind of like, I think one of my big mistakes was looking back was just being like, you go hire 10 people. 
And the people that were hired were also young, idealistic types, which was great, but there was no management level people. There was no people with a lot of work experience and people that can actually lead and manage while, you know, we were still on a rocket ship. And I was like, I don't want to hire like people on like six figure salaries. That's way too much, you know, with my, you know, like immigrant roots. And I just, I wanted to keep it everyone like, I was very naive in that regard because I also had never built a company that was so huge before. I think it was just like that naivete that kind of kept, it was like me and a bunch of like 20 somethings, you know, like early 20 somethings. And so I think when I spent like, again, on a rocket ship, we were just kicking ass and doing so much. But then when I kind of took a look at our culture at the end of 2016, it was just like very like feminist AF, which was too much for me. I didn't want it to be like a feminist sword in your hand type of a business. Like we were inclusive of everyone. I didn't want to. And so it just kind of became that. So we were like period feminine, like because of these young idealists on the team. And I was just like, I got to put a stop to this. We are a positive, high vibration company that puts out positive content. We're not saying strangled by my bra. And we're not saying using fe weaponizing feminism for self gain. Like this is not things that I support nor do I want to put my business behind or my name brand behind. And of course, when there's a lot of young people, it's again, like the work experience, and it doesn't. So I ended up having to let, let some people go. And that's when a lot of the challenging stuff happened, you know, not protected, didn't have middle managers that really knew. And so I didn't expect a lot of the things to come out in the way they did. And again, like I understand hurt people hurt people and say things that aren't taken way out of context and things like that. And and I've, you know, since deeply forgiven and also shared by like, hey, you know, I'm I'm sorry if I didn't put people in place that could support the growth of of the team. And I'd stepped down from things in 2017 and then really jumped in. And for, so we started Tushy. I raised the money for Tushy in 2014 because I saw the precipice of what was coming for the business. In 2014, what did you raise for Tushy? $400,000. Your magic number. I know, it was crazy. From one person, with that money, I put a few people in place for Tushy and then I kind of let them lead that lead for a while while I was obviously building building things. So I would talk to them on, on weekends to check in to see how things were going. And it was still just early, early, just getting the kind of the pieces together. And then in 2017, when I stepped down from Thinks, I moved to really building Tushy. And so I, I'm happy to share the Tushy story next. So tell us what, like, what is Tushy? What is the problem you're solving? I guess the most obvious question, how does your cultural roots play into this, uh, this concept? Is it like the most obvious thing in the world to you, but just surprisingly not to Westerners? Like, take us through that. Yeah, Tushy was born out of a need for me in 2014 as well. Like I, I developed, I think, working the restaurant so much and starting things and not listening to my body at all. I developed a pretty extreme hyperthyroid condition it was terrifying. Like I, my heart would palpitate, like beat out like so hard, so fast. I lost a lot of weight. I got down to almost a hundred pounds, which was really scary. And one of the big side effects was pooping up to eight times a day. And I would barely eat because I would just leave my body and it would be huge poops. I was losing all the weight. My body was just super hyper. It was hyperactive because it was just trying so hard to regulate because I was working so much. And so you know, going to the bathroom, you're wiping and wiping and wiping and wiping. My butt just ended up being so chapped and so much pain that I ended up jumping in the shower all the time to like just wash it gently and trying to not harm it, you know, because it was just so red and so chapped. For Valentine's Day in 2014, my boyfriend, now husband, 
got me this really crappy bidet product that he found on like, you know, some Asian place. And he installed it for Valentine's Day. And he was like, look, it's going to help your butt. And I was just like, and then it truly changed my life. It literally overnight changed my life because it was such a, like, imagine going to the bathroom eight times a day. It was so, it was like taking over my whole day. It was so ridiculous for a year, like for a couple of years, like it was terrible. So I finally, like, it, I healed it. I healed my thyroid. I started doing all this work. I started meditating. I started seeing a life coach I, and really purging all of my feelings that were, I was held, holding inside. I started taking supplements, started with Mark Hyman. I started eliminating all the shit in my diet that was causing inflammation. And then I, my thyroid completely healed, completely healed. Like my, all of my system completely normalized. But I owe a lot of those early painful moments to like the healing and the, ugh, like a huge weight from having a bidet. Then I was like, oh my God, all the use cases, anyone with chronic UTIs, hemorrhoids, anal fissures, anal itching, bacterial vaginosis, yeast infections, people who have any GI issues where they have soft poops, where they have to wipe and wipe and wipe, any hairy guy, like any woman who has a period, any person who's pre-sex, post-sex, all my gay friends, they talk about like this, like we should, you should have a campaign called Be a Better Bottom in a wash, don't why, you know? And like the use cases are endless, pre-sex, post-sex, like pre-period, like baby, when you're pregnant or post-pregnant. And then just in general, clean. Everyone realized, what am I doing buying this like wasteful things I have to buy over and over again, toilet paper, when I could buy a bidet once and just pat dry with a towel if I need to, or pat dry with a little bit of toilet paper, 80% less I could conserve and save my money to the tune of thousands of dollars for my family a year. It's just a no brainer. So talk to me like macro level then, where's the company today? Like, how are you doing? What are, you, what are your plans? Like, what is the next thing for you? Or is it this forever? Like, do you have any of those kind of insights? Do you think about this a lot? You, you, you don't feel like someone who just lets life run them. Right. Well, I do have the next idea. But for now, like, I really am passionate about, you know, bringing Tushy to every household in America. I think it is life changing. It's game changing. And um, where we are, I mean, we, you know, I think the pandemic was a huge turning point for our business. We 5X'd our 2019 numbers during the pandemic. And so we had a, like a few million dollar days during the pandemic, which was a huge milestone as an entrepreneur. And so we finally, you know, we had 11 people at the start of 2020. We 5X'd our, our 2019 numbers with, with 11 people. So it was just like 2021, this year has been a big rebuilding year. We've tripled our team. We brought our CMO from... Procter & Gamble. We brought in a VP of operations from Casper. We brought in a product manager from Deloitte. We brought in um, a VP of marketing from Harry's. We brought in a, you know, director of marketing from Old Spice. Like we really, we really are building the dream team right now. And so this year we're still going to be at like between five and a half to six extra 2019 numbers. Because 2020 is kind of a crazy year. So we're kind of like, not very hard to make a, a year of like understanding true metrics. And so we're kind of basing it off our 2016, 17, 18, 19, and then now 21. And so we're still more than five and a half, six Xing our 2019 numbers. And we were calling it sort of our big year, a rebuilding year. And then next year's are huge, our next multiples. And we're entering, we're entering 513 Walmart stores in this year, which is cool. Wow. So amazing. Okay. And and exit plans? Like, do you look at that already or? Yeah, we're, we're, we definitely have some interest early interest in in conversations. We're still kind of figuring out, 
you know, what our timing is, you know, you know, like I think we have a lot of juice still in the, in the fruit, you know, to squeeze. And so we're, we're kind of. In the grapefruit. In the grapefruit, in the grapefruit. It's timing, timing's everything. So if it's the right, the right people, the right deal, the right vision, you know, the right partnership, then absolutely. And if not, we'll keep building and keep going. And we have just the most exciting team to behind it. So. Yeah, that's definitely Tushy. And by the way, very important, don't go to Tushy.com. It's a very graphic porn site. <laughs> yeah. Go, go to Hello. Yeah, I mean, I've already, I've already, I've already found this out. Yeah, exactly. Go to HelloTushy.com. It's actually, you know, to me, I'm very proud of like the artfulness of our brand and you'll be able to see the cheeky tone and the artful vibe and it, you it, and you can feel the, you know, relatability to it in a way that I think a lot of device toilet companies just haven't been able to do. And I think that's one of the big reasons why Toto hasn't been able to really penetrate the U.S. market. Okay, so wrapping up this part of the interview, um, I want to know what your biggest biggest learning is on your journey. I think the biggest learning is hire slow, fire fast. That's one of the biggest ones. Um, really take time into getting to know the people and um, that we work with and, and make sure that we have people at different levels so that they can learn from each other and, and that there, there's no like one major group. It's beautifully diverse age-wise, experience-wise, obviously race, gender. We're, Tushy is like diverse in every possible way. And we're super proud of that. I think that diversity is actually huge. I know it sounds like, ah, but it's, it's not. You know, one of the things that I learned is that conscious businesses outperform major indices, S&P 500, Dow Jones, by up to 13 times if you actually are thinking about the stakeholder models where every stakeholder wins, not just shareholders, employees, customers, you know, suppliers, the environment. It's a win, 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 win model. And that model actually proves to have financially, exponentially better results. Awesome. Last question. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? And uh, the second part of that is what is your best piece of advice for any aspiring entrepreneurs looking to follow in your footsteps? I'll start with the latter. The best piece of advice that I can give any entrepreneur, um, anybody who's interested in this, in this journey is to really show up for your friends, truly, and not be like, sorry, sorry, my company, busy, can't do it, can't make it, I'm too important, I can't. The end of the day, you're, you're gonna go through ups and downs and you're gonna go through shit and to have a solid community of friends there with you along the journey through the highs and the lows to hold your hand is the most critical thing. Cause otherwise you're just on this lonely journey. And I think like what, where I, where I was able to really like go through the, the valleys of my last company, that really challenging time was having my whole community hold me so beautifully through that time because I show up for my friends so hardcore. You know, I go to everything, even if I'm busy as fuck, I'm there for their events. I'm there for their things. I'm there for their parties, for their things. And to support the shit out of them. And I prioritize that because there's nothing more important than deep friendship through anything. Like, you know, your, your businesses will come and go, but your friendships like are what really hold our hearts and hold our spirits and hold our, our souls when we, when we, it's not like I'm doing it, I'm helping you so you can help me. It's by genuinely wanting to show up for your friends. It's just a love, it just goes around. For me, like when I went through my crazy, crazy hardcore time in my last company at Thinks, I probably had not one day for a year where I didn't have a friend come over with food, with like, yeah, I was pregnant and post-pregnant. I was with a baby during this, the hardest time when it was crazy. One time I had friend with a huge boombox, 20 friends 
came during the height of the storm of the crazy shit I went through. 20 friends came barging through my door with a huge boom box surrounding me, dancing around me just to lift up, just to be like, fuck that, you know, like, fuck them, fuck that. Like, you're good. Like, we're going to keep moving forward together. Like, there's no amount of money that can change that. Been amazing, Mickey. Thank you so much for all your time. It's been awesome to chat. Yeah, same, same. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you and your journey as well. It sounds exciting and I love what you're doing. It's important. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. I made a couple of angel investments in carbon offsetting companies. And the more I read and the more I learned, the more I was like, this is all a flaming pile of shit. Like, I can't believe this is what people are buying right now. It makes no sense at all. Like the accounting of it, like what's being sold, the quality, even with these certification bodies, it just maybe being an outsider and a, like a learner made me able to question things in a way that I wouldn't have been able to if I didn't come from a different sphere of knowledge. That was Michelle Yu, who previously co-founded Songkick and is now the founder of Supercritical, a startup helping other companies reach carbon neutral. Find out how she made the switch from publishing to tech and how the environmental crisis is actually going to be solved. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stolomon, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.